Good morning and welcome to Trinity Heights virtual service. We are now in our fifth and final part of our series in Galatians, Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. So I'll start off with this question. Do you think that things were better in the past? Or do you think things are better now than they were? Or do you think that the best is yet to come? Today, we're going to look at Paul's view on the past, the present, and the future. Paul doesn't shy away from giving his verdict on those things, and at times he's quite blunt about it. But thankfully, along with his strong, sometimes forceful assertions about the past, the present, and the future, he also explains why he takes that view of things. Well, there's no time like the present, as they say, and that's exactly where Paul begins. He says, to the churches in Galatia, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The present evil age. Why does Paul call it the present evil age? Why is the age evil? Well, you know, we've all met those old curmudgeons, haven't we, who sort of fail to keep up with the times. You know, Grandpa Simpson, kids these days. Is, is Paul an old curmudgeon, a relic out of time, perhaps? A traditionalist who railed against everything new. A technophobe like me who sees with every new iPhone that comes out that we're one step closer to the robot wars. Is it a condemnation of contemporary secular culture, music, art, this present evil age? Is Paul out of step with his times because he keeps looking back at the way things were, the good old days when I were a lad? Or, or is he looking further back through the mists of time to a golden age set in the much more distant past, an idealized gilded age? which Paul himself never knew or experienced, but which he thinks he wants. Why, Paul, do you call the present age evil? Well, after the first couple of chapters in which Paul has shared some of his sort of biographical details, which we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, uh, we get to chapter three and we read these words. So also, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. And he sums it up with a promise all nations will be blessed through you. So Paul does look back then, all the way back to Father Abraham. But he's not looking back to Abraham as if Abraham was living in this magnificent, gilded, golden age. But he looks back to Abraham to remind us of a promise that was given to Abraham concerning the entire future of humanity a promise that works to sort of bind the very distant past and perhaps the equally distant future, and it binds them together. 
So he, he looks to the past, not, not to, to take us back there, as it were, but to make a determination about what the future is going to be. According to Paul, there's something that happened in the past, which is a promise guaranteeing the future of humanity. By the way, just as an aside, I think it's worth pointing out again, as I have in the past, that Paul assumes that the human story is going somewhere. It's not just going to meander aimlessly. It has a destination. It has a goal. It has a purpose. And this is such a powerful way of understanding the human story that our own increasingly very secular culture, uh, which tends to dismiss the biblical narrative, continues to operate within this framework when it comes to the human story. So, for example, every time our culture talks about progress, ethical and moral progress, the assumption behind that is that humanity is, has, has somewhere to go. We don't progress to nowhere. Otherwise, how do you measure progress and, and what would progress even mean? Every time someone talks about being on the right or the wrong side of history, the assumption behind that is that humanity has an ultimate goal from which we're going to one day be able to look back and see which way history was heading all along. Every time someone talks about being progressive, they reinscribe the idea that the human story will arrive one day at its destination. Now, I'm not saying that Christian eschatology, the idea that the, the unfolding purposes of God for his creation are, are the same thing as modern ideas of progress. I, I don't want to conflate, conflate those two and collapse them into each other, but it's, it's been pointed out by atheist philosopher John Gray, agnostic historian Tom Holland, that modern ideas of progress are really a pale version of this story. And it continues to be convincing it continues to be convincing only because not enough people as yet have stopped to ask, uh, where exactly are we going? And why are we heading there? And who decided that's where we should go? And so, yes, as I've said, contemporaries such as Tom Holland and John Gray have written about this. But of course, Nietzsche pointed all of this out writing in the 1800s, and one day we'll all catch up with him. So, the past, the present, the future. Let's go back to Paul. Okay, so Paul starts out casting a, a rather gloomy picture of the present. He looks back to the past, to a promise given to Abraham, and from there, he looks to humanity's future. So he has this very gloomy picture of the present, but he also looks back to the past, to this promise given in the distant past, which then looks forward to humanity's distant future. So what is this promise concerning humanity's future all about? You know, what often happens here is that we read the book of Galatians through the very particular lens of the Reformation. We imagine that Paul is confronting the same issues that Martin Luther confronted in the medieval church. Paul is Luther, and the legalists of the Catholic Church. And what were Lutheran and the Catholic Church arguing about? Well, in part, how does one attain one's own personal salvation? How does one guarantee one's personal post-mortem experience? And so we just assume that the entire argument in this letter 
is about the same thing uh, as was going on between Luther and the Catholic Church. Is salvation by grace through faith, or is it by works of the Jewish law, the Torah? Is personal salvation a free gift of God given to us as individuals, or is it something that you earn? We just assume that that's what Paul is talking about in Galatians. But is that really where Paul's emphasis is, or, or is the emphasis on the wrong syllable, or, or the wrong, sorry, is the emphasis on the wrong syllable, as they say? Well, let's put Paul's words about Abraham and the promise that he received in the context of the rest of this letter. So last week we argued that in the first two chapters, Paul has been telling a series of stories which all move in the same direction. If you remember, we said that each story he tells in the first two chapters starts with this feature of, of people being divided, people at odds with each other, people being left out and excluded. And then each story travels in the same direction, away from division toward unity, away from enmity toward solidarity, away from exclusion toward inclusion. With every story Paul tells in those first two chapters, it's the same. Paul and Peter are watching the gospel work among Jewish people and Gentile people, and they seem to be having an equal effect, Paul says. Paul is no longer persecuting the church, but he's standing with the church. Uh, Titus, no longer excluded from community on the grounds of being circumcised or not, but he's included in the community. Paul confronts Peter over table fellowship. Look, we don't eat separately at different tables. Peter, what are you doing? We, we eat together from the same table. Every story he tells in those first couple of chapters has this same movement. And we said that reading these stories, we're not leading up to the heart of the message of Galatians, but in reading these stories, we find ourselves already in the very heart of the message of this letter. And in fact, the heart of Paul's gospel message, the message given to Abraham in advance. One day, all nations will be blessed through you. According to Galatians chapter 3, and those verses, 12 verses, 10 to 22, God promised Abraham a single worldwide family. But the Torah was being used to forever keep Jews and Gentiles in their separate compartments, which is exactly the problem of chapter two, where Paul is talking about believers, including Peter, eating separately, which, of course, is the same problem with the Galatian congregation as well. Now, to be clear, Paul does not think one earns one's personal salvation through performing the works of Jewish Torah. Of course, salvation is a gift. It is by grace through faith. But it's important to understand that this is just not the emphasis here. The emphasis is not on how does one earns one own or how does one attain one's own personal salvation? Is it earned or is it a gift? But that's not the question that Paul's wrestling with. But rather, the emphasis is on how do we recognize who already belongs to the covenant people of God? Or, or what binds the covenant people of God together? And Paul says, Jesus is how we recognize whether someone belongs to the covenant of people of God. What is the badge of membership in Israel? Paul says, Jesus. Membership in God's Israel is faith in Jesus. Where is the boundary marker? 
uh, and Paul says the boundary marker is Jesus. What, what binds our lives, yours and my life together, Paul says, Jesus. Paul says God has done in Christ what the Torah could not do so that there now exists this single promise, multi-ethnic, monotheistic family, God's children and theirs. So the times are evil, not because Paul is an old curmudgeon who's stuck in the past, just doesn't like today's secular culture and art and music or, or whatever. Uh, he's a technophobe or something like that. The times are evil, not because Paul is stuck in the past, looking back to some golden gilded age, but because the present age is ruled as it is by false gods who work to divide and then conquer humanity, as we talked about in uh, week two. They work to divide and conquer humanity, which is, in other words, to work against, directly against God's future and intended purpose for humanity. But it doesn't just do to point out the evil age. Sometimes people think they're being prophetic by you know, ranting about how bad things are. Or, or by giving people the solution. Here's the answer. Just follow these instructions. You'll see I was right. No, Paul wants something more from the Galatians. N.T. Wright points out that when we look at the most acrimonious relationships in the world, he says it will not do simply to say that into this world must be spoken the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that Paul articulates and defends in Galatians. This is, of course, true, but what will it say to the Serb and the Croat, to the Tutsi and the Hutu, to the Palestinian and the Israeli? Will it simply say, if only you would all believe in Jesus, none of this would be necessary? If it did, it might find further problems. The Serb and the Croat, the Catholic and the Protestant in Northern Ireland, all in theory, believe in Jesus. And to modify the statement to say, if only you would believe in Jesus the same way I do, would stand revealed as a new sort of tribalism. The most powerful statement the church can make must be made symbolically through the coming together in a single worshiping family, eating at the same table of all those who belong to Jesus the Messiah, despite their apparently irreconcilable racial, tribal, or other tensions. That is the powerful message of Galatians. If someone were to ask you, what is the church all about? What's the purpose of the church? Why, why does it even exist? How would you answer? Some people think it's a religious organization, a place for people with common religious devotions, a place for the devout. Some people think it's an activist group to change society. That's the main aim. Or perhaps a do-gooding organization, a service organization like the Rotary Club, or, or perhaps more cynically, a self-serving exclusive club, perhaps a country club or a club for the self-righteous. No, according to Galatians, the church exists in order to embody God's future reality, to embody in the present God's future purpose for humanity. Paul says, 
So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is God's future brought forward. Or perhaps we could say we are God's future brought forward. So in some sense, Paul is playing with the idea that we, we don't belong to the present evil age, divided as it is. Or perhaps we, we straddle the two time zones. We, we live, of course, in this present evil age where humanity is divided against each other. But we also embody the age to come by our love and unity with each other. Each time we choose unity over division, think about that when we're faced with that choice. Each time we choose unity over division, each time we choose love over hate, each time we choose togetherness over enmity, we look back through the mists of time to that ancient promise made to Abraham, and we look to the horizon to what comes next.